0: Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. We're speaking with Dr. Judith Ben Schwartzberg. She's the author of Cognitive Kin Moral Strangers Linking Animal Cognition, Animal Ethics, and Animal Welfare. Dr. Ben Schwartzberg is a senior postdoc researcher at the University for Veterinarian Medicine in Vienna. Dr. Ben Schwartzberg, thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: Yes, thanks for having me.
0: So philosophers have started looking into the socio-cognitive abilities of animals. So their language, beliefs, logic, memory, um, and even mind reading uh, to a certain extent. But there's a huge gap in research looking at the ethical implications of animals' cognitive ability. Why is that?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's not so easy to answer. I mean, maybe it's because it's fascinating to accumulate um, scientific knowledge and to get some surprising insights into animal minds on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's also, um, it means leaving our comfort zone when asking, what do we do with this knowledge? So the ethical question is, um, what are the implications of knowing more and more about disabilities in animals and how should it influence the way we treat animals? The problem with that is that the human-animal relationship can um, basically be characterized foremost as a relationship of use, I would say. So that means we are using animals as testing devices for products, for therapies, for human medicine, for example, in the lab. We use them on farms for food. We use them in in our homes as social support and companionship. Um, And also we use them um, as entertainment um, objects, if you think about circuses, for example, and to, to a certain extent also zoos. And these are just some areas um, which are easy to understand, I guess. So um, the ethical question is um, basically, um, are we allowed to still use, for example, great apes um, in animal experimentation or keep them in circuses and zoos um, when these animals are on a socio-cognitive and emotional level of, let's say, a three to five-year-old child, right? Right. So, um, what happens um, in light of, of increasing knowledge about animals' minds and their emotions is that animals turn from objects we use and possess into, um, yeah, in, into individual, indi- individual subjects, right? Um, and they seem to be very much our cognitive kin and have their own personalities. So this is the problem we face when when we um, have a closer look on on what we should do with the knowledge we gain from from, um, animal behavior and comparative cognition research.
0: So you talk about uh, these three areas of cognitive research, culture, language, and theory of the mind. So why have we attributed these to humans and how's that changing?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think, um, S- to some extent, at least, um, we like to understand ourselves as special, maybe. And we also like to argue in favor of um, continued practices of use or um, continued ideologies we entertain, right? And uh, the thing is, the way we treat animals, um, let's think about um, um meat eating as as a context, for example, is as much shaped by an ideology that has been called by sociologists carnism as is the opposite, veganism or vegetarianism. So social psychology tells us that what we find here is a network of um, legitimate Now, how how do do I say that in English? Um, Narratives that legitimize what we're doing, right? We come up with narratives that help to justify what we want to do with these animals. So one thing is knowing about these abilities in animals and knowing how animals are. And the other side of the coin is um, not wanting to know, right? So um, for example, we like to say that those species we want to eat, Um, are dumb or don't have complex cognitive abilities and don't um, really suffer. That's at least what we can see from empirical studies where people were asked to rate animals according to their cognitive abilities and their ability to suffering. And what you find is a very cultural dependent um, list um, ranking in the sense that, um, for example, pigs and cows are ranked low with regard to their cognitive abilities and their um, ability to suffer. Compared to dogs, for example, who are ranked high in in a culture where dogs are appreciated as companion animals. So, um, But this is just one example, I mean, the meat eating um, topic. In in general, I think um, we have ascribed these abilities to humans only because there's a century-long tradition um, also um, supported by philosophers telling us that these are the abilities that make humans uniquely and separate them from animals and this on the other hand gives us a reason why we can treat animals in a different way and do things to them which we usually don't do in at least in many instances to humans and the question why why is this changing i mean Maybe we're now facing since the last, let's say, 60, 70 years Um Just too many new research results to shut our eyes any any longer. That's one possibility. So, I mean, um, empirical knowledge has accumulated and it has accumulated in different disciplines um, who deal with human-animal relationship. And that's great because for now we can really start working interdisciplinary on the topic. So we can combine findings from psychology, sociology, um, philosophy, biology, and so on. To get a better picture, and having a better picture, having more knowledge, knowledge um, helps a little bit, right? On the other hand, I think an increasing number of philosophers and also biologists have um, the courage now and um, and really speak up um, to face normative questions as well. One example is Jane Godal or Mark Beckoff, who, who these are two researchers who started as ethologists, but have Turned also into activists and and bring their knowledge to to activism and and um, try to improve animal welfare and animal rights. So um, there are more and more role models um, working like this, which encourages, on the other hand, young scholars to maybe also combine um, their scientific interests with um, political interests as well, for example and ethical interests. And there is an increasing ethical sensitivity, probably, in in, in society in general. Um, so, while, while the numbers um, of animals we use in, in animal testing, for example, and, and, and in, in meat consumption are um, increasing um, still, um, we have on the other side a range of ethical theories now um, that Make us think about these issues, and we have also social movements um, that are well established in our society. So society seems to be ready for some some crucial changes, maybe. And also, um, society increasingly sees the interrelatedness of the big questions we face. And um, as we are right in the middle of a pandemic at the moment, um, this is quite, I think, important to see because um, the pandemic we have at the moment is a zoonosis and it has to do with how humans treat animals. I mean, the virus spread from um, markets where wild animals are kept under horrific conditions and sold under these conditions. And scholars have have told us um, for years that something like this could happen, right? Um, But... The animal rights movement in specific, for example, is also, um, a broader, uh, is also connected to a broader question, namely that of social justice, um, because a society that treats animals badly and doesn't have an understanding for any um, yeah, treatment of animals, humane treatment is most likely society that also mistreats um, minorities, for example. So the question of social justice um, and um, rights of minorities um, has been linked to animal rights questions as well. And the climate change issue is also um, one of the big questions of the future that is easily linkable to our way of um, using animals if you think about meat consumption. So, um, yeah, we've started to recognize um, these these things and how they how they are interrelated and up to a level that even the insurance companies in the U.S., as far as I know, have recognized the advantages of blast, uh, plant-based diets, for example, and so on. So this is just an example to show you that these kinds of ideas are, yeah, they are getting embedded into other movements and embedded into social structures somehow. So all of this might lead to um, to, to, to a situation where it's maybe, yeah, at least on an intellectual level, let's say it like that, um, the human animal relationship has the
0: opportunity to,
1: to um, yeah, become a better relationship and, and we have the opportunity to, to reflect on it.
0: Um, so you also mentioned Jane Goodall earlier, and uh, I'm gonna talk about this because this is such a famous example. Um, when it comes to tool use. Uh, so tool use was thought to be the sort of dividing line between humans and animals. Um, so in 1917, Wolfgang Kohler observed chimpanzees using tools to solve problems, but people still considered tool use exclusively as the domain of humans. That is until Jane Goodall comes along and studied chimps in the 1960s and observed them using tools. So. How was this a breakthrough in the way we perceive animals and how they actually think?
1: Well, I think it was a breakthrough um, with regard to different aspects. So first of all, it set the stage for researching true tool use in animals. Uh, I mean, it's true what you said. It it was one of the dividing characteristics uh, for animals. And it was the first time that um, the community saw this changing, right, when she reported her results. Um, so yeah, it was it was a breakthrough with regard to the specific research on animal tool use, but it also set the stage for some other female researchers to follow in her footsteps in a community that was really, and I think to some extent also still is male dominated. So I think it was that was also an aspect of breakthrough. Um and we can see from her, um, from her observations um, other areas of interest, not just um, tool use that opened up suddenly as something that might be um, fascinating to, to look into. For example, um, the ability to grieve in animals. I mean, she reported reactions of, of animals to the death of conspecifics, specifics. And, and I think her observations were also in this area some of the first ones we have. And are still used today to argue that um, animals like chimpanzees might have a concept of, of grief. Um, furthermore, I think it set the stage for um, yeah perceiving the animals as individuals. I mean, Jane Goodell um, gave her her um, animals names, for example. That was the first, and it was also cause of criticism from from
0: colleagues um yeah i remember it was, I, colleagues thought it was it was rather cute in a way didn't they
1: yeah yeah i mean it's very easy to to say what 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 uh, what a woman does is not rational and it's romantic or whatever right this was exactly the way um how to to um yeah how not to appreciate um some female research and it's a very old um narrative to to argue along these lines. And and I think the fact that she gave them names was one of the things that was surprising to to colleagues because up to then, um, the animals um, were just um, numbered, right? And um, there's a difference between um, an animal you research um, um, who is just a number um, to you um, and more ranges more like a research object, right, in in, in the object sense, than uh, what Jane Goodall did with um, treating them also, not just naming them but treating them as individuals um, and um, observing them in in their own as these individuals, observing them in their own social communities and in their own habitat. I mean, that was really a breakthrough also. So um, her research, I think, emphasized the importance and the value of field research also. I mean, Köhler was um, in the lab, right? Um, uh, Even though it was an outside enclosure, as far as I know, but um, this is classical um, lab research, um, as we see it today also in, in En Zeus lijkt Leipzig zo in... Germany with the Wolfgang Köhler Primate Research Station there, um, yeah. But but Jane Goodall's research really put an emphasis on on the importance and value of field research and as well on the um, preservation of those habitats. I mean, it's not a coincidence that she really turned from from being a pure researcher into um, founding the Jane Goodall Institute and the Roots and Shoots program and so on. So she's very much concerned not just with the animals but with um, habitat and with, um, yeah, the conservation of these species, right? So, I mean, I think
0: her influence was manifold
1: on the community and very important.
0: Can you talk about how animals develop culture or traditions? How does this go beyond social gatherings that might accomplish basic goals like gathering food?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, the thing with, um, with uh, culture is that we can define it in in a in a very simple and um, and uh, biological way as a unique array of socially transmitted behavior. That's the official definition in comparative cognition. Um, so a, u- a unique array of socially transmitted behavior. That means then if we find a specific, let's say, tool use culture like the termite fishing or nut cracking. Um, Things that Shangoda already um, saw in chimpanzees. Um, it's important to rule out that um, that a community who does that and another community who doesn't show the behavior um, is not, um, you know, um, distinguished by their genes, for example, because if they have different uh, def- different genetics, it might be a genetic. Um, genetically coded behavior, right? And it's also important to rule out that it's just the environment. Um, if we have this behavior south of the Congo River, but we don't have it north of the Congo River, uh, and in the north of north of the Congo River, we also don't have um, the specific nuts, for example, which the chimpanzees um, crack, or we don't have the specific stones they need for their anvils or so on. Then it's explainable by environmental um, factors, right? That the north northern community doesn't do it. So um, these things have to be ruled out and, and what then remains is um that the behavior if if they are similar with regard to genes and if, if the situation is similar um with regard to the environmental conditions, then it it's probably um a socially transmitted behavior that arises because one individual invented it um and the other ones um it might be that they just found it cool or so, or interesting, right? Um, or also helpful, but it can be something that is also not that functional than not cracking. I mean, it it can be specific um, behavior, right? Um, that is more, yeah, um, yeah, not not uh, connected to food acquisition, also. And that's exactly, I think, the the the. Um, the point um, coming from your question. If we have this unique array of socially transmitted behavior, we can see in chimpanzees very nicely that there is a huge complexity of this array. Um, that means chimpanzees, for example, have um, specific social traditions like um, hand-holding positions during grooming, so-called hand clasp, or they, have, um, they use plants to self-medicate and so on. So they show these um, socially transmitted um, traditions in their communities um, in all these different domains. And I think that's a possibility to, to say, okay, the, the term culture in general, the question does a species have culture could be, I don't know whether it makes that much sense, but it's a possibility to define it like that. Could be if, if, this, if this array has a specific complexity and if um, these traditions span over different domains. Whereas we can maybe speak of a tool culture in a more specific sense, if it's just um, limited to food acquisition, for example. And in in some species, we find lots of examples of tool use in the domain of food acquisition, but we know little about other domains so far. Again, this could be because we haven't, we just haven't observed it yet, right? But, this is at least something that, for example, distinguishes um, um, what, we, what we know from chimpanzees and orangutans um, compared to New Caledonian grows, for example, who are very skilled tool users um, in the lab and in, in, in the wild. Um, but this is really um, focused a lot on, on food acquisition.
0: Really fascinating research here. Um, I could talk about this all day because you have so many fascinating examples of different kinds of animals uh, using different tools and uh, different forms of language. Uh, Dr. Judith Benz-Schwarzberg, she is a senior postdoc researcher at the University for Veterinary Medicine in Vienna. Her paper is Cognitive Kin, Moral Strangers, Linking animal cognition, animal ethics, and animal welfare. Uh, Dr. Ben Schwartzberg, thank you again so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for your questions. Thanks. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.